Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, uh, we'll begin by comparing the problems of the federal budget with the problems of state budget. Uh, Points of comparison include how the budgets are put together, where the money goes, how it's raised, what are the institutional restraints, and are there any structural issues that affect future policy options? And then, as Social Security celebrated its 87th birthday last Sunday, August 14th, we'll discuss a new Concord Coalition issue brief authored by Chief Economist Steve Robinson on different ways to measure the ratio of benefits to wages, sometimes referred to as the replacement rate, or in other words, how much of a worker's earnings are replaced by Social Security benefits in retirement. We'll get into all of this and more with our guest this week. First, we'll talk with Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, which is an independent nonprofit policy research organization in Concord, New Hampshire. Phil, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you very much, Bob. It's great to be here. Um, it's uh, great to have you here because we focus all the time on the federal budget. And, you know, uh, people have to remember that there are state budgets that affect their lives, sometimes more directly uh, than the federal budget. And so it's really interesting to take a look at a, at a specific state budget and look at some of the peculiarities. So first with uh, – and maybe there's some lessons to be learned at the, for the federal budget – from how the state budgets uh, work. So just at a high level, uh, you know, 30,000-foot level first, uh, how is the New Hampshire state budget put together, um, you you know, and basically where does the money come from and where does it go? The state budget in New Hampshire, and this is true for a minority of states, but in New Hampshire is a two-year budget. So the the legislature is in charge of uh, passing and approving and modifying the budget and putting that final version together. Um, As a legislator, which all our legislators have two-year terms here in New Hampshire, that means you're only voting on one budget as opposed to two budgets. So there's not a budget for every fiscal year. It's a budget that covers two fiscal years. Who's responsible for it in total because of that longer timeline? Uh, The state agencies start putting together their budget requests actually the summer before a budget process begins, a budget cycle begins. So they are working on their budgets that will begin next July and then run through the next two years after that. Those budget proposals then go to the governor's office. The governor's office uh, then puts to, takes those agency budget requests, puts together a budget proposal, presents it to the legislature, and then the legislature passes a budget typically before that July 1st start date of the next state fiscal year. So the process goes through all those hands. And of course, the governor has an opportunity to sign or veto the budget at the end of the legislative process. That two-year time horizon means that things like revenue projections are quite important because the state budget does have to balance per statutory requirement in New Hampshire. 
and uh, and those revenue projections are based on state revenue and what federal dollars may be matched with that state revenue. And state revenue comes from tax and non-tax revenue sources. And the state budget does fund a lot of key services, particularly with for people with low and moderate incomes and for kids, because education is a key uh, state function um, in terms of states versus federal governments. Education funding at the local level is on the state and local government responsibility side. The health and host, uh, social services piece, there's a lot of federal matching funds that are part of that. But those are the two biggest pieces of the state budget. That must be kind of difficult making projections about what you're going to get from the federal budget because we don't know. I mean, the federal budget is, is somewhat un, in, inconsistent. But, but I guess some of this stuff is uh, based on long-term patterns or contracts. The biggest federal program in terms of what contributes to the state budget and services funded through uh, the state government uh, is Medicaid, right? So that mm-hmm. is a um, that That's is a an place ongoing program that, yeah. Right, absolutely. So the there's a 50-50 match for most of Medicaid and some other parts like expanded Medicaid. It's a 90-10 match where the federal government is paying 90 cents on the dollar that, uh, that then that dollar is then used to fund uh, health services for people, uh, particularly people with low incomes or limited means in the state. Um, those uh, those dollars are uh, a little bit easier to rely upon in some ways than some of the dollars that may be more uh, discretionary at the federal level. But what uh, one thing that the state government does is passes a state a two year state budget, but during the process checks in. There's a there's a committee of the legislature that looks on, on a usually on a monthly basis to see are there other federal grants that are coming in that require us to modify the budget and examines those grants, which usually come in the form of requests from state agencies and then approves them or um, or rejects them as it sees fit. Um, so that's a that's a change over the course of the budget that is sort of done on a on a incremental basis. But yes, uh, certainly changes like what we've seen during the pandemic, where the Medicaid match rate has been changed. That's something that's hard for the state to anticipate at times. Um, transportation funding, uh, the infrastructure uh, investment uh, and jobs act that was passed last year at the federal level. That's going to have an impact on the next state budget that wasn't foreseen in the prior state budget, for example. It all uh, seems to be good times right now for (laughs) state budgets. Now, you mentioned COVID because these surprises have been on the upside as far as the uh, fiscal outcome is is concerned. So before uh, I want to bring Av into the conversation, too, uh, Av Harris, our communications director, is joining me for this program. I forgot to mention at the outset, but but uh, uh, Phil, the, where is the COVID money right now? How uh, you know? Does it still a big part of uh, New Hampshire's budget? Yeah, so New Hampshire has made the choice, and other states have made different choices on this front in terms of how to organize it. But uh, the relief money associated with the pandemic actually doesn't appear in our state budget, but it is certainly part of the state expenditure picture. So that's where you're drawing the line between what's the state, what's in the state budget, and what isn't. Um, over the course of the pandemic, uh, if we look at the CARES Act, um, the American Rescue Plan Act, the Consolidated Appropriations Act back in December of 2020, uh, those um, those federal appropriations have brought more than $16 billion into the state's economy. Um, and when I say state's economy overall, I mean of that n- nearly 17, over 16, nearly $17 billion, about $5 billion is in the Paycheck Protection Program and aid to other businesses. Um, another two and a quarter billion were those economic impact payments to individuals, the sort of stimulus checks, the so-called stimulus checks that went to individuals. There's also flexible grants to the state government. That's about two and a quarter billion dollars over that time period as well. Um, enhanced unemployment compensation, about a billion 
million and a half dollars. Then you have uh, grants to healthcare providers, grants for K through 12 public education. Those uh, those make up sort of the balance, and a lot of dedicated per, uh, funding for dedicated programs make up the balance. So you know, close to 17 billion dollars into the New Hampshire economy over two years is a is a big portion. Uh, relative, it's a really significant investment, um, and a two year state budget, for example. Uh, the current two-year state budget is between 13 and 14 billion dollars itself. So this is a really significant amount of federal funds that have come into the state. The state, for its part, has had flexible funds from both the CARES Act, much, most of which are spent at this point, um, and the American Rescue Plan Act. The, those American Rescue Plan Act dollars can be spent through the end of 2026. About three quarters of them, close to three quarters of them, have been appropriated for some purpose or another so far. Um, a lot has gone to uh, water infrastructure, so water and sewer infrastructure. Uh, some has gone to housing. And that's the next largest piece. Uh, building upgrades at the state level, um, mental health or substance use disorder services and healthcare services have also played a significant role in terms of how the state has been deciding to appropriate those funds. Um, information technology upgrades um, and also some uh, public protection, public safety, uh, with the balance being sort of uh, smaller, uh, smaller pieces of the pie, if you will. But the state still has a significant significant amount to appropriate, and that's a pretty substantial opportunity over the next few years. <laughs> New Hampshire's a little bit odd in, in how it collects revenue and how it doesn't. There's no income tax in New Hampshire. There's also no, no sales tax. So where does New Hampshire raise the majority of its revenue? How is that done? Because you've got all this federal money coming in. But that, that is a one in a million sort of un, very unique circumstance, right, that you would get more than your, your biennial budget uh, in, in, in one, you know, funds dump. Um, but in a normal year, without all that federal infusion of cash, where does New Hampshire, besides the federal investments, where does New Hampshire raise the majority of its state revenue? That's a great question, especially given that 41 states have both a broad-based income and a broad-based sales tax. New Hampshire has neither. Only one other state has neither, and that is Alaska. And there's a fair bit of energy-related revenue that's produced in Alaska as well. Um, you know, if we look at the last state fiscal year, uh, the federal funds are close to half of all the money that came into the New Hampshire state government. It's usually about a third of the state budget um, is federal funds, so they're a really key part of the revenue collected. Um, we do collect the next largest revenue revenue source after federal funds uh, that come into the state are revenues from the Liquor Commission, our state liquor sales. The Liquor Commission also has to pay for the liquor it sells at state liquor stores. So the actual profit from that is, is smaller, but that profit does go to support the state government. Lottery Commission, similar in that sells lottery tickets, also has to pay for operations and winnings. That's our fourth largest revenue source, if you look at all the revenue sources. But in terms of taxation, um, our largest tax is the business profits tax, which is similar to your typical state corporate income tax. Uh, New Hampshire is, I believe, among the states the most reliant on corporate income taxes of any other state in terms of a percentage of the tax revenue that it collects. Um, we also have another tax would, on businesses called the business enterprise tax, which is a little bit more focused on operations. Um, we have property taxes. We have narrower sales taxes. So, for example, on restaurant meals and hotel rooms, hotels. there's a there's a tax on those. There are taxes on tobacco products, particularly cigarettes, and 
and uh, real estate transactions. That's become more important hmm. as how as we've had a housing constraint, a severe housing constraint in New Hampshire, and that has driven up the prices of houses and has also actually brought more onto the market because those prices have gone so high. So uh, the uh, real estate transfer tax has become a more important source of revenue. We also tax gasoline, diesel, um, as as I think every state does, um, and uh, and also levy certain taxes on certain hospital services. Uh, we do have a narrow-based income tax, which is just on in interest, dividend, and distribution income. Um, that is actually being phased out currently per the current state budget. So without those federal funds, uh, I mean, that, that's sort of how New Hampshire can get away with not having a uh, broad-based income tax or sales tax, because the state gets uh, such a large portion uh, of its revenue from the federal government. Yeah, and New Hampshire's not... Uh, uh, far out of line of other states in terms of percentage of their expenditures coming from the federal government. But if those federal grants were to disappear um, or to be curtailed significantly, that would have a very significant impact on the services provided here. Um, certainly the state has found creative ways to leverage federal funds in the past right. and, to, and to not have to, uh, with the alternative, if you were to provide those services being raising revenue on the state side, um, the state has found ways to avoid that in the past through leveraging federal funds. Back when I was just out of college in the late 90s, there was a very monumental uh, Supreme Court case, which had to do with education funding, the Claremont decision, um, which basically said, and it's funny because in the state constitution, um, it actually says that uh, the state has a responsibility of providing an adequate education uh, for you know all the school children going to school in New Hampshire, which is sort of funny in the sense that uh, most education is just funded by local dollars based on property tax revenue. And so there was a lawsuit. Uh, five uh, property poor towns sued the state and said, you know, it's not fair. You're not fulfilling your constitutional obligation. If you're leaving it up to every city and town to, to fund its own schools, then not every child is going to get that adequate education. Uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling. They said, you know what, you're right. Uh, legislature, you have to figure out a way to fund education so that everybody gets an adequate education. Um, there were plans proposed. They kept getting rejected by the Supreme Court. Finally, they settled upon this idea of doing a statewide uh, property tax, which would be levied against everybody uh, to the same. The, the, the funds would be collected and then distributed to those cities and towns that were uh, in need. That was around 20 years ago. Where are we now? Now with with education funding and statewide property tax and you know how that money is collected and distributed in New Hampshire. Yeah, so it's been a it's been a somewhat complicated path, but the fundamentals have been have been pretty similar. Um, right now, and I should note the so the supreme the state supreme court's interpretation around re the requirement to require to provide um, what are called adequate education grants or adequate education aid to local governments. Um, those uh, those are still in place. Uh, they have been changed somewhat over time, but those are still in place. The base amount is about $3,800 per student. There are additional dollars that are provided um, for students who are eligible for free and reduced price meals, which means they have low incomes at home. Uh, for students who are English language learners, for uh, students who have um, special education needs, there are additional dollars associated with that. But those per-pupil grants do exist, are still provided by the state government. That $3,700, $3,800 base, as it is now, um, is a relatively small portion of the overall costs that 
schools actually report in terms of their per pupil cost, which depending on whether you include transportation and tuition um, uh, and capital costs, those could be seventeen, eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars per student, uh, which is obviously quite a bit more than that base level of thirty-eight hundred dollars. Uh, but the state does fund those adequate those baseline adequate education grants and some of that additional aid, um, and that is funded in part through the statewide education property tax. That tax actually doesn't collect any revenue to the state. It's well, right now the state requires that local governments raise it, but none of the revenue is actually collected and distributed anywhere else. So if you count that as a local property tax because it functions that way, essentially about uh, about seventy percent of funding for local public schools in New Hampshire comes through local property tax bases, comes through local property taxation. And in New Hampshire, everything uh, or very many services, including uh, including uh, local public schools, are based at smaller school districts or really at uh, city and town levels is where the property tax bases are. So that means that the uh, the uh, the property tax base that you have is very determined. It is um, determined in part by do you happen to have a lot of property in your town or not? Do you have a large facility? Do you have a, a seacoast or lakeshore that has high property values? Or do you have a low amount of property value and maybe a high number of students that you have to serve? So that means that you can see pretty significantly varying property tax rates at the local level, despite the fact that there is state aid that is paid through the statewide education property tax and other revenue sources. Yeah, I wanted to get back on the economy a little bit and the, uh, the COVID money. Has the New Hampshire re economy rebounded faster than you expected, and uh, to what extent? Uh, so I would say, uh, relative to what I was thinking in early 2020, yes, it's faster than I expected then. Um, uh, really, the two constraints that we have on the economy in New Hampshire now are housing and workforce, and obviously they are interrelated. Um, our uh, latest unemployment rate estimate is about 2%, uh, which is a very low unemployment rate That's relative nice. to other states. Right? Uh, it means that a lot of uh, a lot of companies and a lot of uh, organizations, even beyond you know companies that you might think writ large, uh, have had a lot of trouble finding workers. And so you'd think, all right, well, you could just import more workers, but we have a very severe housing constraint in the state. Um, between March 2017 and March 2022, the median home sale price went up 80 percent in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, our rental vacancy rate uh, is down at half a percent. And for two bedroom apartments, it's 0.3 percent. Whereas if you take the comparable numbers nationwide, it's closer to 5 percent, which is more of a balanced market. So uh, those are really significant headwinds on the New Hampshire economy in the short term. Um, those are obviously, in some cases, signs of a economy that's running hot, right? So is that a recovery from the COVID-19 crisis? Yes, in some ways, but there's still very much a constraint on it. So I'll say that relative to what ended up being the revenue shortfall, the amount of assistance that the state uh, has received exceeds that amount that the revenue shortfall ended up being uh, over the course of this time period. Um, one thing that I do think is noteworthy is that solving some of these bigger structural problems that the state has, particularly around housing, that's, that's an expensive proposition, right? And the state has devoted some of those dollars, um, and I believe local governments have to a certain extent, although I can't say that definitively, have devoted some of their flexible dollars to housing-related initiatives. Um, 
Another piece is if we are seeing shakier economic conditions going forward, then having some of these infrastructure projects in the t in the pipeline already, um, and having some of these resources available to provide supports uh, associated with, say, if we were to have a weakening economy, or if the economy is at least not running as hot as it has been over the last year, um, then having these resources available, particularly with that longer timeline to the end of 2026, um, could be very fortuitous for the state. Hey, listen, it's never easy in a sudden sharp recession to uh, to know whether you're giving too much or too little. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Av Harris and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Senior Policy Analyst at the New Hampshire Policy Institute, and we've been talking about comparisons between the New Hampshire state budget and the federal budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And I'm uh, joined on this segment by two state budget experts who might actually be familiar to you. Uh, they're Av Harris, our communications director, and Phil Smith, our national field director. You regularly hear Av and Phil uh, pontificating on the economy and the federal budget. What you probably don't know about them is that they have experience in their respective state governments. Av, uh, before joining the Concord Coalition, worked overseeing communications and government relations for the Connecticut Department of Public Health. And Phil served as the chief operating officer for two state government agencies in Georgia, uh, first at the Department of Community Affairs and then at the Technical College System of Georgia. So I thought uh, we should tap into their expertise on the state budget, uh, following up on our conversation with uh, Phil Sletton. Av, let me, uh, let me begin with you. Um, give me some of your thoughts about uh, the differences between what you actually saw on the ground and what you're looking at now in the, in the world of the federal budget. I was a legislative and, and policy director for the city of Bridgeport, which is the largest city in Connecticut. And actually, uh, one of our big, uh, our biggest task every year legislatively was to advocate uh, for state funds uh, for uh, the city of Bridgeport. And we have, uh, you know, we had a, a large population. We also had a, uh, a population with um, a lot of Medicaid recipients. Uh, so the, the poverty was an issue and still is in Bridgeport. Um, we have a lot of people on public housing. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of students uh, in, in the school system. It's, it's, you know, one of the one of the poorest school systems in the state. And it's the largest school system in the state at uh, 23,000 students. Um, so so a big job that I had was to work with our legislative delegation and advocate for more funds for the city as part of the budget process, which similar to what Phil described, the governor formally presents a budget to the legislature in the beginning of the year in January or February. Now that in some states, it's a little bit different where it's the governor's budget and the legislature reacts in other states. Um, the the legislature is the primary mover of the budget, and then the governor reacts. And so, when the governor presents uh, the budget, it's it starts this whole uh, choreography. It's a little bit of a dance. You have the legislative majority will then come back with their version of the budget, what they would like to see, and the minority will present their version of the budget. So, what happened um, in 2017 uh, in that legislative year was it was and it was an odd year. So. Connecticut does biennial budgets, much like New Hampshire, and 
Uh, the odd years are the ones where they open up the entire books and they're, they're doing the whole state budget. It's about a $40 billion budget oh, for two years. And we had an even Senate. We had 18 Republicans and 18 Democrats in the Senate. So that means essentially the Republicans could block with just getting one Democrat to vote with them. They could block uh, any budget from clearing the legislature. And what happened was this happened a number of times. And if you don't adopt a budget by a certain date, um, by, you know, the fiscal year starts on July 1st, uh, it's a July fiscal year for state government. And so they did not have a budget agreement. They did not go forward with a budget uh, in, in the summertime. And we, as the largest city in the state, started to see some real world consequences of that. Because, for instance, we had after school programs that were funded with state dollars where we had thousands of kids that it was critical for them to participate in these after school programs funded by the state. Because if they didn't, who knows what kind of trouble they were going to get into. And it was not until late October, or the beginning of November that the state adopted a budget, but they did it in a bipartisan way, largely ignoring the governor, who was a lame duck governor at the time and had very low popularity ratings. And what they did by doing that was adopting a whole bunch of fiscal controls that the Republicans were insisting on. And that has resulted a few years later, if you fast forward to 2022, to that plus about $6 billion in COVID funding that came from the federal government, but the fiscal controls have turned into the largest amount of budget reserves ever in the state of Connecticut's history. They created a volatility fund, which would capture dollars to offset some of the ups and downs of the stock market, because a lot of the capital gains taxes uh, is what used to, to fund the government, uh, stock and dividend taxes in Connecticut. And so because of that bipartisan budget agreement that went through, that had such a supermajority that it didn't matter if the governor was going to veto it or not, uh, that has resulted in Connecticut having the largest budget surplus ever in its history. Right now, it topped off at $4.3 billion uh, at the end of the, the fiscal year, at the, at, the, uh, at, the, at the end of June this summer. It's the largest one they've ever had. Uh, Phil, uh, the state of Georgia, you had the experience of uh, being the chief operating officer in two different state budgets. And how did that work with federal funds coming in? How, how big a deal were the federal funds that came in and how did you work with those? So Georgia has about a $50 billion annual budget. And when I was at those two different state agencies, I was always hyper-focused on the budget, particularly when I was COO at the Department of Community Affairs. We actually got 70% of our funding at that state agency from the federal government. Um, the Department of Community Affairs is the primary housing agency. Uh, in Georgia. And so that 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 agency regularly receives federal money. But uh, when we have uh, interesting things happening in Washington, uh, that type of stuff flows downhill pretty fast. Right. So uh, by interesting things, I'm talking about the Great Recession. So if you turn the clock back to the aughts and you think back to 2008, 2009, uh, remember when we passed all that legislation in Washington, $787 billion in stimulus. So uh, down here in Georgia, uh, I came into state government about five or six years after that was passed. And there's an interesting story that was associated with that. So a lot was done for Wall Street in that legislation. And the Congressional Black Caucus stepped up at one point and said, hey, how about do something for Main Street and all this? So they sent these funds to us, to the state housing agencies. 
instructing us to basically offer people mortgage assistance. So for example, if you lost your job during the Great Recession, or even if you took a pay cut and you kept your job, uh, you, you would have access to this mortgage assistance program. In Georgia, we call it Home Safe. Well, the people who came into this agency before our leadership team, they just kind of thought if you opened the door and said, here's the money, people would come. And what we learned is that wasn't necessarily a fact. You had to market it in some way. You had to let the people know that this money was available. And so it stayed stagnant and still stayed stagnant. Even, even after we got there and tried to find ways to market it, it was very difficult. And then you start talking about differences in ideology from state to state. I can't help but think that our predecessors probably had some um, ideological differences with this money that they were in charge of distributing, right? They probably at their core didn't believe in what they what this, this program was all about. So you have all these different issues coming at you from different ways. But that was my experience at the Department of Community Affairs. And the governor that I worked for was always hyper-focused on maintaining Georgia's superior AAA bond rating. Does the budget in, in Georgia, I assume the answer is yes, have to balance and is it really balanced? State lawmakers always like to brag when uh, members of Congress are in town because they say, oh, we do, you know, in Georgia, we have to be fiscally responsible and we have to balance the budget. And uh, and for the most part, that's true. But what they leave out a lot of times in that little soundbite is we still borrow money for significant capital projects. And that gets back to that bond rating. That's the reason that, you know, the governor down here uh, was so concerned about keeping that bond rating at AAA. And, you know, we've seen, you know, Georgia's a really prime. I mean, Georgia's one of the best bond, has one of the best bond ratings in the whole country. Um, unfortunately, there's, you know, the, probably the poster child for the worst would be Illinois, right? They've just made mistake after mistake. And so it's very, very costly for Illinois to borrow money for capital projects. Where in Georgia, you know, we get, we get the cheapest money we can when we borrow money because of that bond rating. So we do borrow money in Georgia uh, for these projects, and we do so at a fantastic rate because of that bond rating. You know, there's one thing that uh, we haven't really talked about. And we don't have a lot of time to uh, to really get into it. But I just think it's important to note that the the state budgets have the same fundamental problem that the federal budget does long term so that uh, the Government Accountability Office, GAO, uh, regularly puts out a report on the federal budget's long term problems. But also they look at the state budget sector. And, you know, it's got the same aging and healthcare problems, plus, you know, the pension problems that you mentioned. Uh, and and then it has to account for education and health care in a lot of cases, you know, pandemics and uh, and and, and uh, uh, spending on law enforcement. And, uh, um, you know, the, the projections for the state budget sector are pretty bad. I mean, you look out 30 years or so and it's like particularly because they have to have they have to adhere to balanced budget segment. So, you know, the problems that they have with the same demographic forces and healthcare forces uh, are presenting an, maybe an even bigger problem for uh, state budgets because the existing revenue sources are just not going to be enough to handle anywhere. So it may, it may be yet another problem that the federal budget will have to face. There may be a, a state budget bailout coming along at some point if you want to worry about something new that you haven't worried about for a while. Uh, did you want to make a point? I mean, we, we're really out of time for this segment, but... Yeah, I mean, I'll quickly jump in on that just to say that in Connecticut, the experience was for decades, the legislators and governors ignored uh, their obligatory funding <clears throat> of the state pension fund. And so this problem grew and grew and grew 
uh, into a, a problem where the state now has a $40 billion unfunded pension liability. So it's the size of an entire um, two-year state budget. And uh, a governor in Connecticut about a decade ago, Governor Malloy, decided that he was going to uh, stop this cycle and start actually paying what the state should be contributing into the pension fund with the goal of trying to make it whole. The problem with that, though, is that the money, the payments, the size of those payments were so substantial that it meant that there were very sizable operating budget deficits that needed to be dealt with. And so he raised income taxes twice, once in 2011, once again in 2015, and he left with an approval rating that was worse than uh, Richard Nixon <laughs> when <laughs> well, Nixon resigned due to Watergate. Well, and so it was politically unpopular, but, but he had to do it. And, um, and this year, the governor Lamont in Connecticut decided to put $4.1 billion, almost all of their state budget surplus, into paying pension payments down. And it has opened up potentially another $450 million a year that could be spent on other things. And so there is your comparison to the federal government, that if we actually pay these debts down, if we operate in a more fiscally sustainable way, there might be funding available for other priorities that people really want. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I've been talking to state budget experts, Alv Harris and Phil Smith of the Concord Coalition. Uh, We'll be right back after these short messages when we'll turn our attention to Social Security. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Well, Social Security turned 87 earlier this week. Uh, It is the largest and probably the most popular and impactful program in the federal budget providing retirement, disability, and survivor benefits to roughly 65 million Americans every month. And it totals over a trillion dollars in benefit payments each year. Uh, The Social Security Administration estimates that about 176 million people work in uh, Social Security covered employment as of 2021. Nevertheless, uh, Social Security is not on a sound fiscal footing for the future. Benefit payments exceed the amount of dedicated tax revenue already, and that gap is projected to grow wider in the coming years. By 2035, the combined retirement and uh, disability trust funds are projected to become insolvent, which would precipitate about a 20% across-the-board benefit cut if no action is taken. Some sort of reform is going to be needed probably the sooner the better. And an important factor in considering reform options is the extent to which benefits in retirement replace the pre-retirement income. And that's the subject uh, on this segment with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who has authored a new issue brief called Social Security Replacement Rates Nudging in the Wrong Direction. Steve, let's let's first just cover the the basic concept here about how Social Security benefits should be related to your pre-retirement income. The concept here is familiar to people who have, if if you've ever met with a financial advisor, financial planner, uh, what they 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 talk about is this notion that when you retire, you would hope to 
maintain your roughly your standard of living that you had previously. The metric that they often talk about is this notion of uh, replacement rates or replacement ratios. And the idea is that you measure the size of your pension or your, uh, you know, your IRA or 401k personal savings. Uh, and you say, well, you know, how much of your previous earnings? So while you're working, you earn wages and salary and you retire, you want to know how much of your previous wages will be replaced by your retirement savings. And obviously, if you earn $100 when you're working and you retire and you have $100, you'd say, well, I've got 100% replacement rate. My, my pension retirement income is equal to my, my previous wages. Now, you obviously don't need to, to have 100% replacement rate because, for example, while you're working, you know, you're paying payroll taxes and you're making contributions to your IRA or 401k. And so, you know, really what you need to think about is sort of what's your net income while you're working and what is your net income in retirement? And, you know, the, the rule of thumb that you often hear is somewhere in the range of 70% to 80% is considered an, an adequate uh, retirement uh, ratio. So in other words, if, if what you make in retirement is 70 or 80% of what you made uh, previously, that, that that's probably, you know, in the neighborhood of where you would need to be. Uh, and so, you know, that's the basic concept is you. And, and that's not all supposed to come from Social Security. Right. Yeah. No, no, no Social Security is known as the, uh, the three-legged stool. That analogy goes back to, uh, you know, all the way back to the 1930s, or maybe not quite that far, 1940s where they talked about social security being part of the three-legged stool. You have three legs, you have social security as one leg of your retirement, you have your employer pension as one leg, and then you have your own personal savings or, you know, your house, home equity or whatever, your, you know, other savings that you've done over your lifetime. So you have three components and those components combined should get you to your targeted uh, ratio or replacement rate of, of your retirement income. Is there some sort of official target rate of, of, of replacement rate that Social Security is designed to achieve? Well, that's interesting because, you know, Social Security has what they call a progressive benefit formula. And so what that means is that the lower your wages, the higher your replacement rate. So let's take an extreme example. So under the current formula, if your monthly wages were only $1,000 a month, then if you retire at the normal retirement age, your replacement rate would actually be 90% because the way the formula works, you get 90% of your first thousand dollars in wages. So, you know, if you look at your, your average uh, uh, wages and then you look at your, your benefit based on that. So if you had a 90% replacement rate, now obviously somebody earning thousand dollars a month, that's pretty low income. So it's unlikely that they would be able to save very much on their own because they're sort of living paycheck to paycheck. And so Social Security recognizes that and says, well, you know, if your income is that low, we don't really imagine you're going to be able to save. And so therefore, the replacement rate is basically going to be, you know, on, a, on an after-tax basis, since your $1,000 in wages were taxed, whereas your Social Security benefit won't be taxed, you know, you actually, your, place, your replacement rate relative to your net earnings, after-tax earnings, is actually higher than 90%. Uh, but then as you go up the income scale, as your income goes up, your wages go up, the replacement rates fall because the benefit formula has this progressive uh, component to it. It's a 90% rate, a 32% rate, and a 15% rate. 
so that by the time somebody gets to say $6,000 in monthly income, Social Security is only, only replacing about 15% of that on the margin. And so therefore, the replacement rates vary in proportion to your income. And that takes into account the fact that low-income people really can't afford to save very much, whereas people who have, you know, if you're making $6,000 a month in, in, in earnings, you probably can save some on your own. So you don't need a social security replacement rate that's as high because you're going to save on your own and, and, and make up the difference. I think one of the things that uh, that really was important that you point out in the issue brief is that once you understand the basic concept, then then comes a tricky job of applying it and uh, figuring out exactly what counts uh, under the uh, replacement and how to how to figure that and and the reason that it's important to understand this is that when you when policymakers think about reform options if you have what's considered to be an inadequate replacement rate well or kind of a low or minimal replacement rate that sort of biases a a, a, a reform option against benefit cuts because you would be thinking that Benefits aren't generous enough to begin with. So uh, we should do the reform on the tax side. If you perceive the replacement rates to be higher or even maybe higher than are necessary, then it might open up the door to benefit reductions in the future as well as uh, tax increases. So how one perceives these replacement rates is terribly uh, critical. And you devote a lot of space in the paper looking at what should be counted, how, how we should look at it. So let me sort of turn that over to you now. And there, there are a couple of different ways of looking at replacement rates. So traditionally, people think about what is the replacement rate for your typical worker? So they look at an individual worker, what is his wages? And then they compare his benefit to his wages. And that's generally done on a worker individual basis. And it's done on a, on a pre-tax basis. And as I pointed out, that, that it's important to include taxes and in comparing benefits relative to wages. The other thing, however, is that Social Security provides benefits to married couples uh, and, and to survivors. And so what, what many people forget about is that if you're married, you can get a benefit for your spouse and it's equal to 50% of the worker benefit. So if their benefit, so if your spouse didn't work or your spouse worked at a lower wage, they can essentially get the spousal benefit. And if that big benefit is bigger than their own, they get the difference. So in other words, as a married couple, you can't get less than 150% of your own benefit if you retire at the full retirement age. And of course, when a married couple, one of the spouses dies, the remaining surviving spouse can collect the higher of the benefits. In other words, if their benefit was lower than their deceased spouse's benefit, they can collect the deceased spouse's benefit. So when you think about Social Security from a, from a lifetime perspective, the fact that most people are married, you have to include a spousal benefit, you have to include survivor benefits, uh, and then you want to take account of taxes. I mean, for example, you know, right now the system is underfunded. If we have to start raising taxes to pay benefits, the benefits that are currently scheduled, then when you do that comparison of benefits to wages, the wages are now smaller because taxes are higher. And therefore, the replacement rate is going to go up because you're comparing the scheduled benefit to the wages that are now lower because of the higher payroll taxes. 
So, you know, to do a full sort of accurate assessment of replacement rates, you really want to take into account how long do people live? Are they married? What are their relative earnings between spouses? What are the taxes going to be? And when you do that, you get much higher replacement rates than is perceived when you simply look at just a single individual worker and only consider pre-tax income. And one of the uh, one of the arguments is that uh, replacement rates should be kept constant over time for people with the same wages. And what you point out in the paper is that if if wages are growing, I mean, what it what it does is increase benefits regardless, uh, you know, over time, uh, adding costs to the system, but not necessarily relating them to what you were just talking about, how, how they may relate to somebody's actual pre-retirement circumstances versus their situation in retirement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, as I've mentioned before, Social Security is progressive. So the notion is people with higher income receive a lower replacement rate. Well, if wages continue to grow in the future, let's say over the next you know, 50 years or so, wages you know, go up by 50%. So everybody's 50% richer. Well, does that mean that if everybody's 50% richer, they should all get higher benefits? Because you know, again, the notion is as wages go up, you should be able to rely more on your own savings. And so it sort of comes down to this question of as the economy grows and the country becomes richer overall, does that mean that Social Security should grow with the economy and provide a larger source of income to people with higher incomes? Or should we recognize that as people become richer, they could rely, in fact, on their own savings more and therefore rely on Social Security less? And that's a critical choice because that determines whether we're going to have to raise taxes to pay for scheduled benefits or whether we want to perhaps slow the growth of benefits and not have to raise taxes as much as we would otherwise. Well, uh, Steve, this is a really important subject. Thanks for teeing up this issue again. It's a great issue brief for those that want to read about it on the Concord Coalition website. It's called Social Security Replacement Rates, Nudging in the Wrong Direction. That's all the time we have for this week. I want to thank our guests. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future next week. 